You're listening to Vatican Radio. In this week's edition of Gospel Truth, the late Jill Bevilacqua and Sean Patrick Lovett bring us readings and reflections from the Gospel of St. John, chapter 2, verses 13 to 25, for the third Sunday in Lent. As the Jewish Passover was near, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple precincts, he came upon people engaged in selling oxen, sheep and doves, and others seated changing coins. He made a kind of whip of cords and drove them all out of the temple area, sheep and oxen alike, and knocked over the money changers' tables, spilling their coins. He told those who were selling doves, Get them out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. His disciples recalled the words of Scripture, Zeal for your house consumes me. At this the Jews responded, What sign can you show us authorizing you to do these things? Destroy this temple, was Jesus' answer, and in three days I will raise it up. They retorted, This temple took forty-six years to build, and you are going to raise it up in three days? Actually, he was talking about the temple of his body. Only after Jesus had been raised from the dead did his disciples recall that he had said this and come to believe the scripture and the word he had spoken. While he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name, for they could see the signs he was performing. For his part, Jesus would not trust himself to them because he knew them all. He needed no one to give him testimony about human nature. He was well aware of what was in their hearts. Although all four evangelists report this incident, John alone goes on to recount what happened after Jesus had driven the merchants and money changers out of the temple area, and what he said to those who questioned his right to do so. John also places the incident early on in our Lord's public life, just after the miracle at Cana, whereas the other three have it towards the end. But in all four accounts, the cleansing of the temple, as it has been called, takes place just before the Passover, a time when Jerusalem would have been crowded with pilgrims up for the festival. The three synoptic Gospels also quote Jesus as saying, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. These much-quoted words, probably among the best known of our Lord's public declarations, because of the spectacular action they're connected with, were actually themselves quotations from two different prophets. In the third book of Isaiah, chapter 56, the title, in the Jerusalem Bible version, is Yahweh welcomes converts from paganism. And the words Jesus quoted, as Mark has in his account, are My house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. Which is interesting, because the market that Jesus broke up on that occasion was taking place, as it always did, under the arcades in the great court of the Gentiles, where everyone, Jew and Gentile, could walk freely. The second prophet Jesus quoted was Jeremiah. In chapter 7, under the title, True Worship, Part A, Against the Temple, we may read, Do you take this temple that bears my name for a robber's den? The other reference to scripture was not made by our Lord, but remembered by the disciples, writes John. Zeal for your house consumes me, was in fact a line from a psalm. 
The house of prayer, which the sellers and money changers had desecrated with their commerce, was the most sacred place for Jews, the central place of worship to which every male Israelite journeyed on pilgrimage for each of the great ritual pilgrim feasts, Passover, the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths. But there hadn't always been a temple. Until the time of Saul, that is, before there was a monarchy, the people of Israel worshipped God in many different places. The handbook on life in Bible times tells us that Israel's first king was confused about the proper way of worship. Faced with sure defeat at the hands of the Philistines, he built an altar on the spot of his encampment and asked for God's help. Samuel arrived shortly afterwards to remind him of the Lord's commandment not to worship at every place. This was a reference to the regulations for sacrifice laid down in the book of Deuteronomy. Take care. You do not offer your holocausts in all the sacred places you see, only in the place that Yahweh chooses. Saul, as we know, was followed by David, under whose rule Israel grew strong and prosperous. And it was David who thought it was time that God should have a temple. He'd built himself a great palace and must have felt that somehow things were not quite as they should be. For he said to Nathan the prophet, Look, I am living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God dwells in a tent. But God had his own plan, for though David bought the site, it was for his son Solomon to build the temple. And a splendid building it was, but destined for destruction a few hundred years later. And though a second temple arose when the Israelites returned from the Babylonian captivity, it was smaller and less ornate. What was more, the Ark of the Covenant had disappeared. It was left to Herod the Great, father of Herod Antipas, under whom Jesus suffered, to build the third and final temple. And as the handbook comments, his motives were not exactly disinterested. Realising the history of unrest among the people, Herod wanted to gain their favour and faith in some way. Traveller H. R. Morton recounts that Herod, being a great builder, had already showered on Jerusalem shining white structures of marble and limestone, but his ambition was to restore the temple to its former architectural glory. He won over the Jews with great difficulty and cunning. He promised not to touch a stone of the old temple until he was ready to build the new. And in order that the holy place should not be defiled by unconsecrated persons, he put a thousand priests into training as stonemasons and carpenters. The work was started in the winter of 20 BC. The Holy of Holies was rebuilt in 18 months, but eight years were occupied in rebuilding the cloisters and the outer enclosures. The work went on long after Herod's death and was continued throughout the reign of Antipas. Every time Jesus visited Jerusalem, he must have seen the workmen busy on some part of the enormous sanctuary. And as our handbook tells us... Jesus loved the temple and respected it. He supported it by encouraging his followers to attend it. He declared it to be sacred and believed it to be worthy of cleansing. And H. V. Morton comments... Much has been written about the attitude of our Lord to the temple. We cannot doubt that while he reverenced the thing it stood for, he condemned the thing it had become. 
Every male Jew of religious age had to contribute to the upkeep of the temple, and the tribute had to be paid in sanctuary shekels. The money in circulation included that of Tyre, Greece, Rome, Egypt and Persia. And for every piece of foreign money the collectors changed, a charge was made. What's more, anyone who refused to pay this compulsory tax endangered his goods. But this poll tax, as we would probably call it today, was only one of the taxes levied on the people for the upkeep of the temple. There were others, such as the first fruits, the so-called seven kinds, wheat, barley, vines, figs, pomegranates, olives and honey. There were the teruma, an offering of wheat, wine and oil, the chala, an offering of kneaded dough, and there were the tithes, covering, we read, everything which may be used as food and is cultivated, growing out of the earth. Even herbs were taxed. Didn't Jesus say, Woe to you, Pharisees, for ye tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs, and pass over judgment and the love of God? And it's not as if they'd never been told, for these words appear in Ecclesiasticus. A man multiplies offerings by keeping the law. He offers communion sacrifice by following the commandments. By showing gratitude, he makes an offering of fine flour. By giving alms, he offers a sacrifice of praise. Honor the Lord with generosity. Do not stint the first fruits you bring. Add a smiling face to all your gifts and be cheerful as you dedicate your tithes. We might have been reading a post-Vatican II writer. And a note in today's translation reads, This book does not appear in the Jewish canon of Scripture and its Latin title, Ecclesiasticus, the Church's book, may call attention to the fact that the Church adopted it, although the synagogue did not. No comment needed. Apart from all these taxes and obligatory offerings, there was also, as we know, the offering of all firstborn sons and all the firstborn males of animals. Those of goats, sheep and oxen belonged to the temple. The sons, and Jesus himself was one, were ransomed on a payment of five shekels to the temple treasury. A lesser fee was due for the ransom of non-sacrificial animals, donkeys, horses or camels. So the temple, as H. V. Morton writes, was a bank and a storehouse of every kind of goods and produce. And he goes on. It was this mighty institution which Christ entered with a whip in his hand. The market was a remarkable feature of the temple. During the days before the Passover, it was at its busiest. It was a cattle market. It was a money market. It was also possible to buy the necessary food and drink offerings there. The market had no doubt grown up over a long period of time because of the demand for Levitically perfect animals, the need to change money into sanctuary coin, and a hundred other material matters connected with the temple worship. Instead of bringing his own lamb or goat to the temple and risking its rejection by the mumuchik or inspector who passed all sacrifices for a fee, the worshipper could buy in the temple market beasts which already had been examined by the authorities and were guaranteed Levitically pure. When Jesus entered the temple market, 
It must have been loud with the bleating of the sacrificial sheep in their pens, the lowing of cattle and the cooing of doves. Men must have been arguing loudly, laughing, trying to get the better of each other, and gazing with contempt on the poor pilgrim who offered no man a profit. We know that prices were artificially manoeuvred, and many a poor peasant was well fleeced there. And if this was the scene that Jesus encountered that day, should we be surprised that he acted as he did? For if we are shocked to learn of such goings-on, in a supposedly sacred place, maybe we should pause a little before we condemn. Are things so very different today? Let's listen to the words of a modern pilgrim visiting the shrine of a favourite saint. From early morning, the blue coaches disgorged their cargo of curious, camera-hung, string-bagged, packed lunch trippers, drawn magnetically, irresistibly, the moment their feet touched the hallowed ground, to the brightly coloured souvenir stalls, to buy brightly coloured scarves, postcards, slides, lives of the saint and models of the basilica, useless pieces of amorphous clay purporting to be genuine local pottery hand-thrown by the genuine locals, factory-working descendants of the peasant saint. Like stage magicians, the guides wave their wands and the herds sway blindly into the newly built basilica to be dazzled by its massive murals, tasteless statues and vulgar white splendour and to listen with half an ear to the unimpressive story of a man who lived unnoticed among his fellow men and who, for some reason as yet unexplained by the modern press, has been raised to the altars. His ordinariness is the only gimmick they have been able to find so far, there are no quaint anecdotes. Even his cures are unsensational. The trippers turn away, bored, and drift aimlessly down the aisles under the imitation Gothic arches, past the pious women kissing the precious relics preserved under glass, past the wall covered with silver hearts in grateful thanks and for graces received, past the blatant posters appealing for funds to pay off the building debt, out, out through the great swing doors into the sunshine, past the professional beggars cowering in corners, rolling their eyes and shuffling their feet, blessing those who give and cursing those who turn their heads, pretending not to see. Down in the public gardens, the afternoon dwindles. Vendors of ice cream, lemonade, nuts and instant sanctity mingle with the picnickers everywhere, scattering litter on the burnt-up grass. But returning to our Gospel, there's a much deeper level on which the action of Jesus in the temple precincts has to be considered, and that is his reference to the temple of his body. A Cistercian monk writes that the Lord loved Israel to serve him in the temple. God especially wished to be adored in the temple, for the Jews visiting the temple was their supreme joy. The pilgrims to Jerusalem dreamed of seeing the animals slaughtered and the smoke rising from the burnt offerings in the temple. But the writer goes on, how did this prophetic image compare with its sublime fulfilment? And he illuminates us. The entire history of the temple in the Bible prefigures Christ, house of the Father, residence of the Most High, where God henceforth receives us. The Word became flesh and lived among us. That flesh became the Godhead's residence on earth. Looked at like this, Solomon's labours come to life, assuming almost infinite proportions. Jesus is the keystone. He is the courtyard to which the Gentiles have access in their quest for God. He is the altar of burnt offerings, himself the altar 
for his own sacrifice. He is the bronze sea, he the purifying water, he the holy place, entered by the priests. He is the altar of incense, being prayer incarnate, perfect praise. He is the showbread, being the Eucharistic bread of life. He is the lampstand, being the light of the world. He is the Holy of Holies, very God incarnate. He is the Ark of the Tables of the Law, himself the author of old law and new. Aaron's rod, he whose priesthood abolished and replaced that of Aaron. He is the manna, whose flesh nourished his faithful people. This is the temple where God instructs henceforth. To God from this temple rises the only homage worthy of him. Jesus is the worshipper, the prayer, the victim without blemish, the only acceptable one whose sacrifice redeems the world and satisfies all righteousness. No one henceforth has access to God except through him. No one can come to the Father except through me. St. Paul expresses this magnificently. Through the blood of Jesus, we have the right to enter the sanctuary by a new way which he has opened for us, a living opening through the curtain, that is to say, his body. And with these thoughts in mind, let's listen to this poem from The Temple by the 17th-century clergyman poet George Herbert. Here it is now, Love. Love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, ungrateful, ah, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand, and smiling did reply, Who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says Love, who bore the blame? My dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, says Love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. <laughs> 